Welcome to this episode of Nuance, a podcast that encourages Christ followers to live faithfully at work, especially in regard to the hot topics of the public square. This season, we're exploring the ever-growing issue of gender identity. As Christ followers, we have to do better and be better, while confidently knowing that the gospel speaks to our most difficult conversations. My name is Case Thorpe. On behalf of my co-host, Crossland Stewart, and myself, welcome to Nuance. Today, Andy Crouch is with us, and we are so pleased that you would take time to join uh, Nuance, the collaborative podcast today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Case sends his greetings. Case Thorpe <laughs> is my co uh, host, but unfortunately, he was not able to be here, and he is so bummed to be missing out on this discussion. Um, I'm really excited, though, to be here because I think your expertise in culture and technology creates a really interesting intersection, particularly as we overlay it on this idea of how do Christians think about and navigate and respond to this besetting, these besetting gender issues that are everywhere, Mm. and particularly in our work. So, Andy, Mm. thank you again for being here, Mm. and welcome. Thank you. As we begin, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, and in particular, how did you get drawn to or interested in culture and then this combination of technology that seems to keep popping up in the work that you do. Uh, interesting. Yeah, I, um, I spent my early uh, kind of adult years after college in campus ministry, working with college students, which is an amazing experience of seeing people at a very formative uh, stage of their lives, trying to make sense of the world, make sense of themselves, find their calling. Um and it was actually uh, out of that experience that I started thinking about culture because really one of the reasons people go to college, it's not the reason we ever say, but but the deep reason is to become proficient in an area of culture, whether you're going to study nursing or you're going to study Greek, which is what I studied, or uh, <laughs> something in between in terms of usefulness. Um, you are there to expand and deepen your kind of cultural fluency, we could say. And, and actually, I realized that as a Christian, um, you know, minister, I did not know how to connect the gospel to what my students were actually doing. That is, Mm -hmm. I knew how to help them have a personal prayer life, how to join a Christian fellowship, how to serve um, the the materially poor, the excluded in Jesus name. But you don't actually have to go to college to do any of those things. Like, uh, so when you're in college, you're there to become culturally, more deeply culturally proficient or fluent. And I didn't have a way, a good way, an adequate way of talking about how the gospel should shape that, which, you know, we might think these days more, or you might talk about is, you know, faith and work. How does what you believe to be true about the world shape the way you show up in your job? And the job of a college student is to be a college student. And we actually had very little theological vocabulary for that. So, that led to about about 10 years of, of thinking about this topic of culture, trying to frame it for my fellow Christians in particular. That then led to thinking about another topic, which is power, because when you really start talking about culture is basically the shared project of trying to make, make something of the world, to make sense of the world, to make 
actual things in the world. We build buildings, we, we uh, make movies, you know, whatever. And when we do that together, um, power is always part of the story. And it's a very complex part of the story. And that became the next frontier. I felt like, gosh, as a Christian, I'm not sure I'm encountering adequate vocabulary to talk about power. So I spent um, a couple of years, wrote really two books that are about that. And that led me, this is the long answer to your question, Croslin, <laughs> to thinking about maybe the most important intersection of culture and power in our world, which is technology. Uh, technology, this relatively recent achievement in a way of human societies, and especially what we call the Western world, to take what we know about science and use it to give ourselves power to make the world we want to make. And, you know, we, we can come at this from one end, which is just what effect is this having on us? And I think a lot of people feel like, I think I spend too much time on my phone, or I think my kids spend too much time on their phones. A lot of kids think their parents spend too much time on their phones. So you can do it from the, like, we feel like there's some effect that we don't like of it. But I'm actually interested in coming at it almost from the other angle. Like, what is what we're building? Uh, what, do, what does what we're building show us about what, what we wish were true, what we dream of as the good life, what we think human flourishing is? Because I actually think we're not building a very good world for human beings. Uh, and I think we're off course in the technology we're developing right now. And so um, that has led me to spend some time trying to articulate what would be a better course. Wow. I'm <laughs> sorry. That was that really makes me <laughs> even more excited about the upcoming conversation as we yeah. get into this other topic. This season of uh, nuance is really all about navigating the gender revolution that's going on and particularly mm. in the area of work. And so mm. um, as we interview and talk to different folks, we're going to be taking different slices of that pie, so to speak. Yeah. But for you, as we begin this conversation, I want to start at the high level, maybe the 100 foot level, that 100,000 foot level, because mm -hmm. I think it's really important that we all are kind of starting from a shared foundation, or yeah. at least understand where you're coming from. Sure. Um, and I think it'll make this conversation more meaningful. And because um, I think a lot of the ideas that are connected to these issues are ones we may or may not be familiar with, but we haven't connected them back mm. to this issue. So I think connecting the dots is a really important mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. So in your latest book, uh, The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World, and for our listeners, it will be um, hyperlinked in the show notes. And so I would strongly uh, commend it to you. But Andy, you take a closer look at the power of displacement in technology. Hmm. Hmm. And so I wondered if you could talk about how technology has displaced our embodied self. Hmm. Hmm. And in particular, what are some of the consequences of that for hmm. us and for our work? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things, you know, I mentioned a moment ago that technology is kind of, uh, it's based on some kind of dream of what the ideal world would be. And one of the driving dreams, it seems to me, that that has um, that has uh, sort of accelerated technology in certain directions is the dream of not having bodies. <laughs> uh, the dream, 
And it started simply with the recognition that up till just a blink of an eye ago in human history, all work involved bodily toil and often really hard work. Um, you know, all work proceeded uh, basically at the pace of digestion. That is, um, human beings or animals had to digest food, uh, gain energy from food, and sure. then translate that through organic processes into work in the world. Using our bodies, uh, either our bodies or, you know, an ox or a horse or, or whatever. Um, and that is very taxing on the human body to try to get the things done we want in the world with human power. And then we, you know, we came, we came across these new sources of energy, new ways of channeling energy, steam power, hydrocarbons, so forth. And we started to realize, oh, we can, we can let the machines do the work. And we picked up on something that's actually been a dream in a way, all the way back in Western history, in a way to Plato, and um, there's this one stream of kind of Western thought, uh, and also it, it for a while was called Gnosticism, that that sees the body as basically just a site of toil and suffering, and and thinks of the good life as a life liberated from the body. And and the Gnostics would have said, actually, when you're saved, the, to be saved is to have your spirit set free from the prison of the body. A great deal of our technology, not just our machines, which replace human manual labor, but also in some ways our computational world, the digital world, it, it really pays no attention to the fact that we have physical bodies. <laughs> and, and, and I would say the number one consequence of this, and it does touch also on, on gender, which we'll get to, I'm sure, is just the immobility that most of us live so much of our lives with. Um, with the best way we've found for human beings to interact with computers uh, through right now is through screens. And screens basically more or less for force you uh, to stay pretty still. And they invite you basically sit down, don't do anything with your body, just think and make little motions with your fingers. <laughs> so really, um, our body is just utilitarian. It's, it, it's a tool. It's like a support system for your brain is how it's imagined. And, and really one that you kind of wish wasn't there. Uh, and, and you especially wish it was, isn't there as it begins to, um, adapt to a very sedentary life. Decay. So, exactly. So we, we are living crossing through the first non-infectious epidemic, like global public health epidemic in human history, non-infectious. We just had a infectious epidemic, sure. um, but that's going to be like a footnote to the real pandemic we're living through, which is called metabolic syndrome. It's the combination of high blood pressure, uh, high blood sugar, um, uh, high weight, um, all of which lead to a number of health complications for human beings. And these all these tend to come together and they all are the result of a world that has that gives our bodies nothing to do. Uh, they're, the, they're the result of the inactivity of the modern world. And most of us have this to some extent. I take a high blood pressure medication. I take a cholesterol medication because basically, uh, as much as I try to stay fit and work out and all that, I still live in an environment that just is not good for my body. Frankly. Right, right. So um, we, so this dream of, of being set free from the body, it's in such contrast to the Hebrew scriptures and therefore the Christian understanding of the human being, which I think the best way to anchor it is in the central text of Judaism, the Shema Yisrael, which says you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Mm -hmm. You are actually meant, you're never, you were never meant to be a soul without a body. You're not a brain without a heart, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And very little of our technology helps us actually develop allness of heart uh, that is 
kind of fullness of emotion, allness of soul, like depth of self, allness of mind, our computers kind of take over and do the thinking for us. And then almost none of our technology helps us develop allness of strength. So this is a vast society-wide flight from uh, fleeing what we were actually made to be, which is embodied heart, soul, mind, strength complexes, you could say, designed for love. And technology is really not designed to help us be that. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's just not what we've been aiming at. No, know? no. And so what are some of the practical consequences as it relates to this battle over identity um, and maybe particularly in the workplace? Hmm. Well, uh, there's probably a couple things. Um, I tend to think in the workplace, people are bringing in, in a way, afflictions that start outside the workplace. So, so I think we need to recognize we're, um, at, and more and more we're coming to work uh, unable to avoid bringing with us a lot of affliction that didn't originate at work. So I would tend to locate most of it outside work per se. Although I do think a lot of the work we give people to do is it's very shallow in some ways, and it's it's not heart, soul, mind, strength work. I, I think this is actually a deep problem in the workplace is we're not being asked, many of us, our jobs, maybe they require really intense mental effort, but they don't require any physical effort. Or maybe they require a lot of physical labor, but they're completely mindless. Uh, and this was did not used to be true in human history. Like we used to... Um, whether it was uh, sort of in the sphere of the home or, or out in the fields, the work that you did was very bodily and also required a lot of skill. Uh, but more and more work, especially paid work, either requires huge amounts of kind of mental training. That's why everybody wants to go to college now, but no physical skill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or it requires physical labor, but it's very... Um, Menial. Menial. It's it. There's all. There's actually a lot more menial work in the world than there used to be, where you're not actually using much skill. You're kind of just part of a machine. So that's one way in which technology is definitely shaping the world of work. And I do think this leads to a whole set of crises of identity. That is, who am I? When I am cut off from my embodied <laughs> presence in the world, when I'm cut off from my own ability to develop skill and um, a kind of uh, graceful capability to work in the world. And not just when I'm paid, but all the time. Um, when I'm cut off from uh, a family environment where I saw my parents working with skill. Uh, so the home has become this place of just pure leisure. Uh, it's where you go to kind of rest after a day or relax, really. I'm not even sure rest is quite what happens, but a lot of Netflix happens. That's like this <laughs> desire to relax or have leisure. And when you never see an integrated family where everyone is contributing, you, you see everyone working. And just remember, this is so new. Like this started with the Industrial Revolution, that we, we put the machines in these big factories because that's what they needed. We brought the men to the factories. And their work now became totally disconnected from the home. The work in the home became more and more automated and mechanized. And of course, this seemed like a great breakthrough at the time, labor-saving devices. And, you know, and indeed, my, my grandmother, uh, great-grandmother, probably spent two days a week doing laundry, just doing laundry. Now you just put it in the washing machine. But what, and I'm not saying that's all bad, but all that happens is the home becomes a very thin place where people are not formed as deeply. So you're not finding out who you are at home. <laughs> you're spending a great deal of your time in kind of leisure activities. And then you're going to work and you're only asked to bring a small part of yourself. I think all this creates a tremendous instability in who am I? Where do I belong? 
who can I trust to tell me who I am? I, I start to feel responsible for like figuring out who I am, expressing myself. I don't feel like anyone's really around me, helping me understand who I am. And all this instability of identity is of course brought to work, just like it's brought into dating relationships or into church for that matter. It's, it, uh, it, we're not sure who we are anymore in this world that really wasn't made to help us become full flourishing human beings. Right, right. And I'm afraid that, you know, this, one of the results of this ongoing diminishment Mm. of ourselves and then in particular of genders is that our technology and our use of it actually promotes the blurring of the gender lines. Mm. Um, Mm. And so, you know, how do we begin to recover our humanity Mm. in light, recover our embodied selves, recover who we were made to be, the heart the soul, the mind, the strength mm-hmm. and body working together mm. in light of the trajectory of technology. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And are there things that you would specifically encourage us as individuals or us as decision makers in our jobs to mm. consider? Mm. How do we rethink what we're doing? Mm. Yeah. So, you know, to think out loud a little bit about how this has specifically shaped the experience of gender, I, I think. Um, you know, the first, there's a couple stages of it in the story. And, and one is that these factories that were designed to take men out of the home, have them work with the machines to get stuff done. When the two wars happen in the first part of the 20th century, especially the Second World War, the men are called to fight. Sure. And that leaves the factories which need to employ women. So women are now taken out of the home and put into the industrial environment for the first time. And then after the war, we have this kind of technological explosion that makes available a whole range of jobs, which really can be done. Um, Either sex, you could say, can can do those jobs. And and we also have this aspiration for economic growth that ultimately the way we realize it is to bring both, uh, if you have a kind of typical married, uh, you know, male and female couple in the 1950s and 60s, and they want to consume more and more stuff, um, it's going to require two incomes. Um, right. So you get this kind of wave of feminism that says, actually, women are qualified to do a lot of these things. There's no reason a woman, I mean, uh, a, a doctor uses all kinds of skills that actually many, many women have those skills. And why can't women do that job just as well as a man? And and today in 2022, as we're recording this, that's so evident. But um, at the time, it, it was a big shift, obviously. But what we what we discarded along the way was the 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 memory that is encoded in our bodies that there are some things in which the two genders are really deeply deeply and beautifully different and complementary and i would think of it less as a line that we need to keep like don't cross the line as much as a like a dance in which we each have a part to play it's very fluid in one way we're not just sort of staying on our separate side of the line sure but we're actually meant to be in this blessed alliance which is this beautiful phrase that um uh, carolyn uh James uses, um, this blessed alliance of very different capabilities in our bodies. So there's a real something I'd really recommend, maybe you could even link to it if you if you uh, want to, <laughs> sure. um, is this really interesting uh, kind of blog or substack called Other Feminisms. Um, it's led by a young woman named Leah Br- Labresco Sargent. And she and a number of other, mostly women, are writing about the need for a new kind of feminism that actually pays attention to the embodied experience of being uh, a woman in particular, 
And one of the things we did as we invited women into all the different spheres of work is we actually did not make hardly any provision for the most distinctive things about being a woman, which is that women have the capacity to um, con uh, bear and give birth to and nurture children at a critical stage of human development, to say the least. Right. <laughs> One that we all must go through. We all absolutely depend on the, the bodies, um, the, the, the heart, really the heart, soul, mind. It's not just the body of the mother. Uh, it's the heart, soul, mind, and strength of the mother attending to the child uh, in, in pregnancy, in birth, and in the, especially the care that the child needs early in life. And we basically have built a work environment that pays almost no attention to that embodied reality. And the substitutes that we make are highly mechanical and in, in many ways not very respectful of the, the rhythms and, and cycles of uh, a woman's body, especially uh, if she's in, uh, uh, in motherhood. But more generally, we've just, we've basically said, come be like a man. And by the way, the Gnostics thought everyone, if they were to be a real human being, would function like a man, which is with a degree of independence and bodily autonomy in the world that could allow you to believe you were just a spirit temporarily in a body, which is really not a, a woman's way of experiencing the world, <laughs> I don't think. And there's a, even, the, there's these things called the Gnostic Gospels. They were, they were um, what do we call them? Apocryphal, like not true no historical basis, but but by uh, the year 150 AD, we have these these Gnostic Gospels circulating that tell stories about Jesus with no historical foundation, no evidence from the first actual followers of Jesus. But they made up these stories in, in several of them. Jesus, there's one in which uh, I think Mary, one of the Marys, comes to Jesus in this Gnostic Gospel, and Jesus said, and and Peter's like, "Gosh, you have a woman following you. That doesn't sound uh, right." And he says, "Oh no, when I save her, she will become a man." <laughs> so this is a denial of male and female. This goes all the way back to the second century AD. So this dream wow. that any, and this also goes back to Aristotle, because Aristotle thought of women as basically deficient men. This is such an unbiblical view. This dream that if we really were to all be fully flourishing human beings, we would all operate the way men operate in the world. We now have realized through technology and we've denied that there are at least our seasons in many women's lives. And there's a kind of bodily reality to being a woman, as, as best I understand it, um, <laughs> that, that is whether or not you ever become a mother, you still, you live with a kind of embodiment in the world that our work world doesn't recognize. And this generates a great deal of distress, which I think most men don't ever hear about, and confusion, which we all are experiencing, because we're basically denying one of the most fundamental things we do, which is together, male and female, create life, nurture life, bring life into the world, playing very different roles in that. And yet, if we don't keep that going, <laughs> the whole human story falls apart, which it is doing in the most advanced societies where fertility is dropping the actual hormonal inputs to being fertile are dropping in both men and women as we live this kind of uh, degendered, disembodied life. So it sounds like from so much of what you've said that some of the root problems that lie, that are part of the identity crisis that's going on is this idea of not knowing who we are. Yes. Not knowing who we were created to be. Yes. And not understanding or living in such a way that takes advantage of 
the heart and the mind and the soul yeah. and the strength, yes. whether we're male or yeah. female. Exactly, exactly. And um, that's just a massively overwhelming yes. issue. <laughs> and actually, and if I could like em- emphasize in a way, not just that we don't know it or understand it, but we're given a technological apparatus, the whole world we live in, that just doesn't make room for it. Right. So, so it becomes harder and harder to understand it if you can't live it. You know, if if the if the world around you is kind of squeezing you into this disembodied mold, you're it's gonna be very hard to imagine. No, it's good to be creative male, it's good to be creative female, and the fullness of what that is as embodied creatures. Well, and maybe this is too much of an assumption, but I'm assuming you're not thinking that we ought to all just become Wendell Berry and move to rural. <laughs> Should America, we just all be Amish? Somewhere. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, you know, it's hard to kind of wrestle with what are the practical implications for my life yes. here in, you know, metropolitan Orlando, right. greater central Florida. Right. And in 2022. Um well, I think we probably need to be more Amish than we would like to think. Well, sure, uh, of you course. Know, in the sense of being very conscious and thoughtful about what technologies we adopt and where we adopt them, because the Amish actually use quite a bit of technology, but they use it very carefully in particular places rather than just letting it kind of run the show. But I think there, especially on this topic of gender, there's so much we can do. And I, w- I would really recommend some of the writing and other feminisms, even recently as we talk, they've been writing about... Um, just the total inadequacy of provision for uh, essentially everything around childbirth. And I understand childbirth is not the only thing that uh, defines women and not all women have children or give birth to children. But, um, but I do think a world that is good for women who are bearing and uh, giving birth to and nurturing children is a world that's better for everyone, actually, men and women. Yes. And so when you think about how do you design a workplace um, and work rhythms and work expectations that actually do justice to the toll it takes to bear a child, to uh, give birth to a child, the, the requirements of a child for nutrition uh, through nursing in, in the first months or couple of years of life? And right now we have extremely bad technological solutions to this. And every woman who's been a working woman who's been a mother sure. knows what I'm talking about is not it's not good. And especially people who are decision makers in the workplace could, um, for instance, the number of women who say that their only option for where they pump milk uh, when they're in the breastfeeding stage is is a closet. Right. <laughs> is unbelievable. Like it's the only provision. And many women say there is nowhere at work that is provided. What if we rethought like the expectations of what it means to come to work when you are at that stage of childbearing? And Leah, this author, has written some really beautiful stuff. And actually, it would make the whole workplace so much more humane for everyone if we were to really honor this most critical season of life for the baby and the mother and the father, too. But right now, we have these very minimal things. We have, you know, a lot of workplaces, well, by law, have to offer some minimal amount of maternity leave. It's not enough, frankly, for what the child and the mother need for bonding, for physical recovery after labor, for the nurturing of the child. There's so much we could change to include this essential part of being human um, and recognize that many, many of the women who uh, we work alongside are going through it. And again, you know, in one sense, you might think, well, that that only applies to like, I don't know, whatever percentage of the workforce. But I actually think a a workplace and and a world 
that actually used and even used technology to some extent to help. So, for example, we're learning a lot about remote work. How could we apply some of those technologies to make it easier for be mothers to be near their very young children for more of the day? There's all kinds of creative possibilities that would actually, I think, spill over into great solutions for lots of other people who may not be bearing children at that particular moment in their lives. I do think if there's a silver lining that comes out of the pandemic, I do think they the pandemic has helped accelerate how we might rethink work yes. and re-envision totally. it where without that, uh, you know, people would have no idea yeah. and would not trust that any work yes, could happen could do outside exactly. the four walls. Exactly. I have so many people say, well, I have to show up at work because they don't trust that work is actually being done. Oh, man. Where I think the pandemic has helped us kind of get wow. over that hurdle yes. or at least lower yep. the hurdle somewhat. Well, let's just get even more practical if we could. Yeah. Um, and specifically on these gender issues, as a believer, how do we respond? How do we serve? How do we love our cubicle mate who is beginning the transition process mm. or a work colleague whose child has announced that they're binary or a company that now your company requires that you gender signal by mm. including your preference uh, mm. for pronouns in your email footer, or your daughter or son goes to work for Starbucks and they now have to put their pronoun sure. preference on their name tag, whether mm. they want to or not. Mm. How do we think about all these things? Mm. So I would start, you know, the starting point for me, I mean, I think in some sense, might might feel like it goes without saying, but, uh, you know, I believe God created human beings, male and female, and created male and female for each other. And um, that is not the view uh, of our society, at least its um, power centers sure. uh, anymore. And that means that we are in a very, very strangely familiar position for believers in the biblical story. For mu much of the whole history of God's people, God's people have lived in the midst of empires that had a very different uh, vision of what it was to be human than right. we did. And so this is basically what, uh, in biblical terms, we talk about as exile. Um, exile is when you um, are seeking to be faithful to the story of the, the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, who brought his people out of Egypt and then for us raised Jesus from the dead. And you have a different story from your neighbors. So one example, and, and I, uh, I'm getting very much to your point, I, I think, is um, the book of Daniel gives us this kind of picture of this particular young man and some of his companions who end up literally living in Babylon. So, you know, Babylon has a totally different set of gods. It, by the way, has a totally different creation story. They don't, they don't believe that the Lord God created the world. They have a totally different story. That's an interesting thing in itself. And they have a totally different set of uh, nomenclature, that is names for human beings. And when Daniel and his companions arrive, they're given Babylonian names. Um, and they're asked to speak this language. That, and the Babylonian names, Belteshazzar is Daniel's name. These are um, actually the idols of Babylon are in the name. So Daniel, I don't, I don't know the Hebrew and Aramaic, but it's a, a reference to God. It's a Hebrew reference to God. Belteshazzar has ba Baal, the, the high god of Babylon, in it. So he's given a name that encodes the idolatry of the empire that he's been forced to serve. 
So what do you do when you are asked to adopt a language? And in, in our case, this, this would be um, an example would be always having to identify one's pronouns. And by the way, we've always actually identified our gender through our names. Uh, yes. It, it, although some of us have names that you're not sure. <laughs> like <them>. my name. <laughs> <laughs> so the truth is we've always signaled in different ways uh, to people who don't know us or who only know us through our name. There is There are a set of conventions we've always had to say, uh, you know, my wife is Catherine, and most people, when they see Catherine, they know. Now with Crosland, they wonder. And, right, And, and right. then you find other ways to let people know. And sure. you did that a long time before this kind of um, fluidity of gender became an issue in our culture. So let's remember that being asked to signal, are you male or female, in, in a way, strangely, it's a reaffirmation. Uh, although sometimes people want to be identified in ways that signal they don't believe there is two genders. They want to be called right. they. This is basically just another moment in a very, very long story of biblical people having to live in exile. And my best sense of what happened with Daniel and his friends is when they went to court, they let themselves be called Belteshazzar and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And we even remember those names. Those, sure. are, those are their Babylonian names, not their Hebrew names. But, but they remembered the true story. And when the true, when the true story came in substantive conflict— with the idolatry of Babylon, they did not bow down. So this is a, a tricky thing for discernment. If I'm asked to give my uh, pronouns as I introduce myself, I have to discern, and I don't, I don't have a cookie-cutter answer for this, Crosley. Am I simply, honor, in a sense, honoring the language of the foreign land in which I live uh, by, by, and, and just being polite, basically? And being polite, by the way, to people who may, may feel very vulnerable as they're trying to navigate their gender identity. You know, if, if I can just be polite and say, you know, this is the language my empire uses to talk about human beings, <laughs> maybe I do it without worrying too much about it. On the other hand, if, I, if the, it comes to a point where I'm asked to somehow positively endorse the idea that God did not create human beings, male and female, and in the United Kingdom, a civil rights court uh, uh, ruled that to simply quote that biblical verse is a violation of civil rights. Oh, wow. Um, that happened a, a couple years ago now. If I'm asked to deny that testimony, I think I have to have the courage to say, I understand that we believe different things, but this is what I believe. And I'm not going to just affirm this, what, what is ultimately not a true statement about human beings. So, that's one level. It's, so there's a lot of discernment. I think Daniel and his friends let themselves be called Belteshazzar. And I think in many settings, it's in a perfectly appropriate thing in exile to let the empire call you what it calls you <laughs> and, and not sweat it because you're after the deeper thing, which is maintaining kind of your own, your own faith and offering that to people in a way that they might be able to hear. And, and if you like raise your hand over every little thing, like I'm not going to speak Babylonian right now, you're just never going to get a hearing. On the other hand, we have to have the courage to say, we, we don't believe this is, this is not what we believe. One more issue you raised, which is a different one, is how do we res respond to our, our neighbors and friends? And some of them may be people from, of course, who grew up in the church and still want to be part of the church. Or who, in our own family. Or in our family. Who are, what they are experiencing, it's so expectable that in a world that has dissociated ourselves from our heart, soul, mind, strength, identity, 
that many of us would start to feel very confused about who we are. And, and it's, it's affliction, really, is what I, how, what I would put it. Affliction being a kind of suffering that you can't easily cure. You know, I think we use the word affliction for some a kind of suffering that is very complex, is not necessarily going to go away. And, and many, many people are afflicted with uncertainty or confusion or a sense of just not, not being who they were meant to be. And I would say it's because they live in this world technology has made. And I understand that, that we who, who hold a traditional view of male and female feel very, in a way, very threatened by that because we don't see it as a good development that there's all this affliction. Right. But I think we need to dis- distinguish like the unhealthy world in which we're all being raised, in which all of our hormone levels are being messed with, frankly. Sure. Um, from the affliction of my neighbor in that cubicle or my or my niece or nephew or my you know my own son or daughter who is coming of age especially in those tender late years of late adolescence and like i this does not feel right i need to make a change i think we need to be as compassionate and patient as we can with that experience because it's it's going to be a very common experience in the coming years um whenever i'm with young people i want to say to them i know that uh, roughly a third of college students are taking a, a, a medication to manage their emotions sure. and, and other aspects of mental health. And I want to say to them, you are not unhealthy people in a normal world. <laughs> you are normal people in an unhealthy world. And the afflictions that you're feeling are not, I, I don't blame you for them at all. So I think we really need to make sure we're not responding with fear or blame to that neighbor who says, I just don't feel like a woman anymore. or I don't feel like a man anymore. They've got good reasons for feeling that in this technological world. Now, are the solutions that they're seeking going to help? We have a lot of evidence they don't help very much. A lot of people who go through, especially surgical tra- gender transition, do not report particularly good outcomes. Sure. So we may legitimately say, I, I don't think the path you're going down is going to help. But to have compassion on what it feels like to be just adrift as a person, that's a pretty normal modern experience in this empire we're living in. Sure. Does that help a little bit? I do. I think it does help. I think we I think as Christians sometimes we struggle with does compassion equal diluting whatever endorsement what I believe, or, or yeah. yes, endorsement. endorsement that's the, the better word. Of the worldview behind it. Yes. It's so tricky. It's yeah. so tricky. But I would, you know, um it's attributed to St. Francis. Stephen Covey used it. It's, um, it's a, sort of a cliche, but uh, seek first to understand, then to be understood. I think there's so much that we need to understand about how, how afflicting it is to grow up in the world we're in. So I would encourage us to bracket our concern about getting all the doctrine right in a way and just seek to understand not that we abandon I, I think it's a huge abdication of our responsibility as God's people to abandon our beliefs that 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 the tradition has given us through thousands of years of many different kind of empires that had all kinds of wacky ideas about male and female the greco-roman world was completely messed up in sure. how it thought about men and women and biblical people Jews and then Christians lived a different way so we've got to do that but they did it largely by demonstration rather than confrontation. They did it by with patience rather than a kind of impatient, fearful reaction. So we have to kind of cultivate the ability to do that. Right. One final thought from you. Um, 
It just seems as I get into better understanding this gender issue and sort of the crisis that we're going through, even if it's become normative, is that this isn't just a Christian issue. There are universal concerns that everyone should have, regardless of their faith, because it seems like the promotion and ongoing nature of this is a further erosion of humanity. And this idea that flourishing as a human being Mm -hmm. I think becomes unimaginable. Mm. And so help us think about, Mm. is that right? Um, You know, it it seems like this is a bigger issue than just this isn't the way we are instructed in the Lord. Totally. And, you know, one way the Christian tradition has talked about this, though it's complex, is the idea of a natural law, that God has created the world with certain just uh, properties and created people with certain properties. and, And we all at some level, know that uh, they are the case, and and Paul in Romans says one of the, one of the things that we know by nature is, is essentially male and female are made for each other, and when we deny that, we um, we go off track, and at some level, everybody, not just biblical people, knows. And yes, there. So I actually, especially on on some of the emerging gender stuff, um, I actually think. Many, many of our neighbors are feeling like this is going too far or this is confusing. And I'm I I think there's a lot of pressure to simply affirm and and not have conflict over it. But I actually think there are public arguments to be made, um, especially, especially because the net result, I I believe you can make a public argument, not having to believe in biblical faith. That the net result of this is the denial specifically of the goodness of being a woman. (laughs) When men say, I can have all the experiences a woman has with some, perhaps some hormonal and physical adaptations and a change in my uh, attire and my, perhaps my behavior, that is a deep undercutting of what it is actually to be born Mm. and raised female. When women are told, oh, the fact that you are really good at science, like my wife is, my wife is a physicist. Well, uh, you're probably really secretly a man and you (laughs) should stop being a woman and we will help you remove body parts so that you can present yourself to the world as a man. That is misogyny. And our neighbors sense this, not just Christians sense this. Sure. A lot of women in particular are like, this is actually not true to what it is to be female. And this is undercutting uh, the dignity of women and the, and the breadth of what it is to be a woman. Because my wife is really good with like machines and computation and math. And these are things that stereotypically at one time were thought, you know, these are male things. It's extremely sexist to say to her, therefore, you need to be a man. Like you really should have been a man here. We can help you act like a man. No, <laughs> she's a woman created by God with these gifts. So I actually think what's happening right now, we should, we should collaborate collaborate with our neighbors to recognize what's actually happening is an undercutting of the dignity of being created female. And whether that's men uh, asserting that they are now women or women being told the fact that you have these identifications with certain traits that are thought of as masculine means you're really male. Sure. Both of those undercut the female. Right. In a way that, frankly, the masculine is not being undercut. <laughs> so Where are the feminists? <laughs> and this is why you have to read other feminisms because actually yes. there's a whole new wave and they're not all Christian. They're not all believing in any transcendent reality, but they just look at reality. They're like, oh, hold on. Right. Let's rethink this. So- Here's the thing. 
they, those people who, whom don't share my faith will not be my ally if they see me as angry, reactive, fearful, judging, condemning, not willing to listen and understand. So if we are to be allies in changing the course of this river or tsunami or whatever it is, if we get known as the people who are just so afraid and angry that we deny the humanity of other people, even those who have been through gender transition and that kind of thing, we will miss out on the chance to actually help lead a cultural shift back towards a, a better account of being male and female. Ah, well said, well said. Well, Andy, thank you again for helping us tackle uh, what at times can seem to be really overwhelming. Hmm. Um, you've given us a lot of food for thought, so thank you. Absolutely, a pleasure. Thank you. Well, here I am. <laughs> Unfortunately, I was not able to participate in that interview. And y'all covered the waterfront. Um, I mean, it just kills me, of course, not to have time with Andy Crouch. We had him here several years ago, and he's he's so uh, enjoyable. But, oh, man, man. Well, I have gotten to listen to the episode, in fact, a couple times. And I was most impressed with the whole notion of we've got to more readily embrace our our position as exiles. And that's a big thing to me. And I have I teach on it in a big way in our Gotham Fellowship and Orlando Fellowship. Uh, but when he talked about how Daniel, how did he say this, um, was using the other name of false gods in that empire and the way in which he Certainly, when there was a substantive conflict, uh, stood up for his faith, but kind of let the other stuff go. And, you know, that's a that's a new way to think about things. I don't know that I've really spent the time to say to myself, OK, what are the substantive ones? What are the ones that I can bend on? Um, but then I had this other thought where if confronted on picking pronouns, and I have had that confrontation uh, at a doctor's office, and it wasn't really confrontation. It was just an, an option that I, I, did, I chose not to take. But I think it would be better, perhaps, to address that if I'm with someone talking about it, it's kind of a, an issue here before us, that it's a freedom of conscience thing in our American democracy, more so than this is the moment for me to convince you of my worldview that I've got a worldview and I'm, I'm settled and solid in that. But here in this moment, this is not the time to get into a debate on those things. But you know what? This is my freedom of conscience. And I hope as Americans, maybe we have that in common and you'll respect that. Thoughts? Case, you're so right. You bring up a great point. You know, the thing that struck me is how eager we are to ignore the truth for the sake of an agenda. I thought Andy brought that out so well when he talked about the degradation of women. And while he didn't talk about it, the same can be true for the degradation of men. In well, this you said, where issue. are the feminists? Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, to me, it was the only response to, um, to Andy's comments. Our interviews are not to be academic exercises, uh, but rather we pray that all of these discussions move us, inform us, both in our head as well as in our hearts. So the question I would put forth today for us to consider before the Lord, and I would encourage you to think about doing this all week long, 
And if you want to, go to 2 Corinthians 10.5. That's the verse that talks about taking every thought captive. Where am I ignoring truth? In my life, in my thoughts, and in my actions. So the question again is, where am I ignoring truth? In my life, in my actions, and thoughts. And ask the Lord to show you how to more readily embrace the truth in all areas of your life. And so the question again for us is, where am I ignoring truth in my life, in my actions, and in my thoughts? Help us spread the word about nuance. Please like the episode, subscribe to our podcast, and share our link so others can engage. Nuance is a production of The Collaborative and is made possible by the Eleanor and T.W. Miller Foundation. On behalf of Case Thorpe and myself, thank you for joining the conversation.